Welcome back, fellow defenders. We are here for a very special follow-up to our Luke Cage Season 2 coverage. Instead of doing our wrap-up on what we thought about the season, we were lucky enough to get a chance to sit down with the showrunner and creator of Luke Cage on Netflix, Chiodari Coker, for a good hour and a half chat with him all about his thoughts and about uh, how he created the universe of Luke Cage, Loads of other history about the things he's worked on in the past, some of the things he's got coming up in the future, and mostly his thoughts about Luke Cage, the show, and the people who are behind the scenes working on it, the cast, the crew, the writers. Uh, some really, really interesting stuff in there uh, that myself and John got to sit down and talk to him about. Yeah, a really fantastic chat um, with uh, Chiro Hadari Koka. Um, and, and also, you know, it was being able to just listen to some really insightful stuff uh, mm -hmm. about the Marvel Netflix shows and obviously focused around Luke Cage. Yeah, yeah. And loads of other stuff like Rocky's in there as well. Some great discussions about Rocky. Yeah, Rocky, uh, X-Men, mm -hmm. loads of other different bits and bobs. Yeah. Uh, just sprinkled throughout a really nice, relaxed and chilled chat with the showrunner of Luke Cage. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you enjoy it and uh, let us know your thoughts. You can always email us at feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com with any thoughts that you have in any of our episodes. Uh, it'd be great to hear from you. Yeah. And of course, please subscribe to Defenders TV Podcast over on any good or evil podcast catcher of your choice. Mm -hmm. Without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, Mr. Coker. It's, De it's Derek here. Can you hear me? Hey, how you doing? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, perfect. Okay, cool. Hello, and it's John here. Love the Luke Cage t-shirt. Hey, how you doing? You know what's funny? Uh, I'm, I'm actually laughing because I just I just happen to be wearing this t-shirt. Like, <laughs> like, I, I literally did not wear this t-shirt for, you know, for, for this uh, conversation. But uh, we, we, we actually did, didn't um, didn't mass produce these. We, we, we made enough um you know for props on set right and yeah. um i made sure there's there's an extra a double xl one and and, and of course I, I i just took it right off the top <laughs> you got it's, it. it's, it was one of the only few you know few perks we actually have on the job <laughs> gotta have some t-shirts did uh did dw actually sell it to you as well from his shop <laughs> <laughs> now well, actually yeah, dw would have charged me or he wouldn't really <laughs> mad that I, that, that, I, that i took one but you know yeah. there there, there are but, you know, membership has its privileges, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we'll kick off the interview with you, if that's all right. All right. That's perfect. So just before we start, or, uh -huh. or we can or we can start, like, I, I just have to, A, just thank you guys, because um, listening to your podcast, you guys are so thoughtful in terms of even the things you argue about. So there, there are times <laughs> where I'm like, wait, wait, like, I, 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 like, I want to call it and say this. I want to say that. <laughs> We, we made this decision for this reason, and oh my God, they got this, and oh, they didn't get this, and it's it's it blows my mind because it's almost as if you're in the writers' room. It's like these are the things that we talk about with this level of scrutiny, mm -hmm. and so like it was really trippy for me listening to the um the finale podcast. I was like, oh my God, it's like a like they're getting it all, and B, it's like oh, I'm scared, like I can't even talk because if we do get a season three, like. There are they're 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 going in directions like, like that we're talking about. Oh, like, oh really? Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Like you know. Yeah, we really enjoy discussing the Marvel Netflix shows, and obviously we really enjoyed Luke Cage. You know, we take a bit of speculation, some theories. We like 
delving into the process of it, looking at the director, uh, the actors, writers, and so on. How do you like to view Luke Cage as a series? So I think the thing is, is that like, there's only but so much plot. Mm-hmm. There are only, there are only but so many different ways to, you know, skin a cat, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so the real magic comes from not the choices because so much of what happens is people try to like get into spoilers. Are they going to do this? Are they going to do that? Yeah. It's all about interpretation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it's I, to me, I kind of look, everything with me is music. And mm-hmm. so I always think of it like jazz standards. It's like people have been playing Stardust like for 45, 50 years. Yeah. 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 But every version sounds different or like, you know, John Coltrane's, um, my favorite things or, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, in a sentimental mood. I mean, how many people, how many different bad versions of that have been played? Yeah, yeah. When someone like John Coltrane, you know, does it, you know, it elevates it to something else and to something different. And so it's about interpretation. Absolutely. And so um, that's the thing. It's like we use the comic books as the jumping off point. But then at the same time, we don't really know exactly how things are going to come out. We just try our best to try to reinterpret them in ways. And so... You know, that's why I, I don't really feel, even though pre- people at Marvel, I'm sure they're snipers, like, oh, my God, I can't believe that, that <laughs> you're, you're, saying you're gonna do this. I'm not saying that. I'm uh-huh. just saying that it's like even if you think that we're doing some of the things that we're going to do, mm-hmm. it doesn't really mean anything because the interpretation will be so different that by the end it's going to feel fresh anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think we kind of come at a, with a bit of a slightly different way than a lot of reviewers do because we don't watch ahead. We record our episode by episode coverage as well so um so we don't see the full finished product when we're talking about each episode so a lot of the time we're kind of just trying to work piece together where where the show's going to go you know so um so it's loads of fun doing it. thanks so much for the compliment that's really nice of you to to say um it's something that we've obviously been working on the podcast for four or five years now and uh, it's been so much fun doing it but getting the three of us together and having us uh, yeah, absolutely. being able to talk about it has been great fun and yeah thanks uh, thanks so much and i mean actually thank you for doing a really interesting and like i think a unique take you know of these marvel netflix everyone brings something different but um just like how the the music is such a large part of the show you know um we've tried to do kind of uh, individual opening themes for our own podcast and like what one of our friends who does blues we got him to try and sort of do that and so seeing some of the blues acts and all the different types of music it's just fantastic great yeah it's been really really good yeah no thank you thank thank you so much and it also makes it fun like god if you if you'd done a terrible season and we'd had to <laughs> talk about it for an hour every episode for 13 episodes you know we couldn't uh, couldn't live with ourselves so thanks for doing a really good season <laughs> well, thank, thank you thank you i mean right although you know the one thing i've learned is that like you can't please everybody mm-hmm. oh yeah and that's that's the hardest part because you know we put our heart and soul into these shows mm-hmm. and um the gift and the curse of twitter is that on one hand, it's great to hear what everyone's thinking. Mm-hmm. The curse is that you try to defend yourself <laughs> to yeah. what everyone's thinking. Yeah. And I, and you, you, you guys have probably seen my Twitter feed. Like, you know, like I, I tend to engage. It's, it's part of it for me is fun. So, I'm, but I'm, I'm like Candyman. Like, if you say my, my name three times, I'm coming. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> here I am. Like, 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 what's up? Like, and so. Yeah. I think sometimes it surprises people that like I actually interact on that level. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think that every um, mistake 
I think that every road that doesn't quite work is an opportunity to try to fine tune things differently um, if you get another go around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, like for me, even when this, uh, though sometimes the feedback can be painful, I use it differently than most do because um, being a, a former music critic and having having written reviews. Yeah. I have a different viewpoint on reviews um, than than I think other people do to to a certain extent. Yeah. And so um, I can always tell when someone is just like kind of just they have an agenda. I can always tell when someone is just like, okay, they watched three of them. They skipped around. Mm -hmm. And and then you can and then you can tell the people that like really have thought about it and they just don't agree with your viewpoint. But that but that that is so it's so ingrained and so heartfelt, even if it's though it's harsh. it's so well written that you can't help but think about, OK, let's look at what they're saying and let's see if 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 in rethinking how we're going to do this season, um, if incorporating that and using it like notes, the, the way that we would use notes from, say, for example, from Netflix or from Marvel. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened in terms of um, I've, t- I've talked about this in the press um, where Angelica J. Bastian's, um, you know, mm-hmm. pieces that, that, that she did for uh, New York Magazine. Yeah. Or, or for, or I think Vulture, um, just really had like because there were some of them were scathing, but they were just so well written. I was just like, man, this is like this is great. <laughs> Although this is terrible. Like I mean, yeah. it was kind of like this, this thing, but it helped us because the top of season two, like we, I literally um, printed them all out and, and distributed them to the writers' room and said, okay, let's look at this. And rather than being hurt or defensive, let's think about what she's saying. And so that was one of the things that came out was. She said it's, you know, um, I think it was one of the first reviews. She said she said it's it's a shame that no one bothered to really think of Luke Cage as a man rather than as a hero. Right. Right. And so on one hand, you get defensive because you're like, OK, I've got all these mandates to establish Luke Cage. I have to establish Luke Cage differently mm-hmm. than was established in Jessica yeah. Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're trying to establish the world. And then at the same time. Um, even though you've got fans that are so deep into canon, mm-hmm. like they can't, I mean, you, there, there, there are going to be some fans out there that are, that are just pissed that he's not wearing a tiara, yeah. uh, you know, a chain belt and a yellow shirt. Yeah, like anytime. Yeah. And then once you get past that, you, you have people that they, they just want to see a literal translation of what they're reading in the comics yeah. Yeah. put on screen. And so, um, there are ripple effects with all these connected universes. So for example, it's like in the comics, Reva Connors is Luke's girlfriend and at the same time had a really had, had some kind of relationship with, um, with striker, AKA diamondback. Yeah. And, um, basically Luke gets framed with drugs and for her murder. Mm-hmm. And that causes this whole thing. Well, mind you, I can't do any of that because of the fact that Reva was introduced in Jessica Jones and she was part of the program that, you know, basically um, created Kilgrave. Yeah. And yeah. so already you're like, whoa, okay, so like. His origin story is off the table kind of thing. Yeah. That that origin story is off the table. Yeah. Like how can, if we're going to use the, you know, the dime back thing at all, how are we going to reintroduce that? Mm-hmm. We can't, we can't reuse the, we can't use the thing where Luke Cage, okay, is from Harlem and is a former gang member who's kind of coming back and, you know, that's off the table. Yeah. And so then you begin to ask all these different questions as to, okay, how can we establish Luke Cage and what he's about? And then at the same time, still introduce the the elements of the comic 
that people are going to hold on to. Yeah. And so um, part of its tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are we going to run away from the black exploitation, sweet sister, sweet Christmas of it all? Or are we going to embrace it in a way that makes sense yeah. in the 20th century? Yeah. Um, and so, of, of course, you know, we did the latter because, I, you know, all black exploitation is, is African-American characters being able to act and react in the same way that their white counterparts do. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you go to the poster from, you know, of Shaft back mm-hmm. in the 70s, it yeah. said, you know, um, hotter than Bond, cooler than Bullet. Nice. And yeah. so essentially this is Richard Roundtree mm-hmm. getting to kick ass, kiss a girl, you know, drive a car. Like, you know, it's it's basically they're saying we want to take the James Bond, you know, template and mm-hmm. put it yeah. in an African-American context down to having an iconic theme song. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, down to having a certain swagger in terms of how he's approaching everything. I mean, you know, it's like Shaft is basically Bond without a budget. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, and a leather coat, but uh-huh. like a lot of the same kind of kinds of Style. like, you know, and now really very dated, you know, kind of chauvinistic mm-hmm. viewpoints. But, you know, for its time, it was revolutionary. Yeah, of course. And, yeah. you know, um, what the, the influence on the comics, of course, is that, um, you know, the Marvel offices in the 70s were very close to Times Square. And so you had all these young writers that are yeah. walking past. You know, if I don't know if you've seen the HBO show, um, The Deuce. Uh, no, actually, no. Oh, it, it's it's an incredible show. It's yeah. really, but it's it's set in the New York of the seventies of of Times Square, and when it was really very seedy, mm-hmm. very um, you know Scorsese taxi Tax driver. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. That that's real. Like yeah. taxi driver actually captured like what what it used to be like back then. Yeah, the Deuce is kind of an extension of it, but. Imagine that environment of just a, of what Hell's Kitchen, which is that area around Times Square in New York. Mm-hmm. That's where Daredevil comes from. Yeah. That's where, you know, the ideas of, OK, you're walking down 42nd Street and you're seeing all these people lined up, to, you know, to wait to go see Shaft. And you're like, wait a minute. Like, you know, we don't have any black characters and this black exploitation thing is really taking off. So why don't we have our own version of that? Yeah. And that's yeah. how a character like Luke Cage is born. And so. You know, you want to keep that energy, but you want to update it. And so basically kind of get back to, to the question. It's like you have all these different things happening and you're trying to do that. And so sometimes you forget, OK, how how am I thinking about this character? Mm-hmm. How am I thinking about like, you know, um, making sure that the human moments are balanced with the superhero moments? Yeah. And we collectively as a writing staff, of course, are constantly in the first season trying to establish the world and trying to establish the marvel of it all. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, creeping past some of these character moments. And that's really, you know, what a sit, what a second season is about. Second season is all about once you've established the world and once you've established kind of the, the premise season two is all about character. And that was really why for season two, we were able to really go really deep into who Luke Cage was and really frankly introduce like flaws in Luke Cage, yeah. which yeah. was something yeah. that my culture, um, you know, was really excited about. Love. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And um, talk about that a little bit, uh, Chio. In regards to taking on season one of Luke Cage, you know, you came into it from doing a lot of episodes of Southland, uh, I believe it was kind of your big, your big break. You come in, to take over the showrunner as a show like Luke Cage, you're effectively setting up the biggest uh, black led show on television at the time. Now, you know, coming into season two, you have things like Black Lightning, you've had Black Panther this year as well. So um, huge ex- change of experience probably for you um, from from season one to season two. Well, kind of getting to my origins. I mean, um, 
I, the first television show I was staffed on was, was Southland. Mm-hmm. And so I was on Southland. Then I was on um, NCIS Los Angeles. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was on Almost Human for, um, for you know, probably for seven of those 12 episodes. Yeah. And, and um, it was interesting. Like, I got traded. I got traded to Ray Donovan and um, essentially Joe Henderson, who went on to, um, you know, create Lucifer, create and run Lucifer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Took my, my, my place in Almost Human. Wow. But it was on almost human that, um, you know, I made a lot of connections and in terms of um, people that ended up coming on to the Luke Cage staff, like Matt Owens, who was in a, who was an assistant at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, Brian Farley, who is our script coordinator. Mm-hmm. Um, so is from that camp. I mean, cause all these different writers rooms are basically like, like circuses and, and, and someone's like, Hey, do you, you know, do you, do you know somebody that, that, that can juggle knives? Yeah, I know this guy or, or <laughs> I mean, that, that, and that's how writers rooms are, are built. It's like yeah. every single room you form relationships that lead to other connections later on. Um, so the final room that I was in before um, working on Luke Cage was um, was Ray Donovan. Right. Uh, and okay. I was on that show. Um, Ann Bitterman, who created um, Southland, also created Ray Donovan. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my finishing school yeah. to a certain extent. Um, because with Ray, you have an iconic midlife crisis male who is trying to navigate the space between, um, what society considers morality and his own personal morality. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, masking a, a deep wound, um, with which is the prism through which he looks at the rest of the world. Right. And so with Luke Cage, you know, coming off of just being around like, you know, Ann Bitterman and David Hollander and and uh, Michael Tolkien and Ron Nyeswaner and um, and Brett Johnson. I mean, like all of whom are just like just incredible with character and incredible with, um, you know, with that kind of nuance. And and is we talk about world building and I saw our world build on Southland. I saw our world build to an even bigger extent on Ray Donovan. Yeah. H- having witnessed all of that. It gave me a huge, um, I don't want to say boost, but it gave me perspective on 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 trying to do the same thing with Luke Cage. Right. Yeah. Because one of the things that Jeff Loeb, um, who beyond being the president of Marvel Television, is in his own right an incredible storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because if you if you've read his comics the way that yeah. I have, his comic writing, I mean. He, he he's one of the you know. Although Jeff will probably get mad about me saying this, he's definitely one of the lions. He's definitely one of one of the most influential comic book writers ever. Without a doubt. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that's interesting with, with Jeff is that because he's also been through the television gamut, he was on the writing staffs of Heroes, Lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you talk to Jeff, you, you know, you're talking not only to somebody as an executive who understands what writers are going through. At the same time, he's been he's been on writing staffs. He's been on some yeah. legendary writing staffs. Yeah. And talking story with him is always from the very beginning, it's, it's always been a very, you know, incredible experience. One of the things that he always said, and it was something that in our, one of our first meetings that always stuck in the back of my head, is that he said that all Marvel characters view their powers as a curse. There's right. nothing happy about where their powers came from. Mm-hmm. And if you remember that, it always gives you a perspective on who they are and what they want and where they're going, which yeah. is really the most important things, you know, to understand for a character. Daredevil, perfect example. It's like yeah. he's got the tragedy of his father's murder, 
in addition to the fact that, you know, being blinded yeah. and, and the senses, there's nothing pretty about what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, Jessica Jones has has in terms of how she got her powers. Yeah. There's incredible tragedy with that. Luke Cage being framed for a crime they didn't commit mm-hmm. and yeah. then happened to him, you know, in prison and then coming out with, with this, these powers that he didn't want. Yeah. And then added to that, you know, taking the the um the backstory that um Melissa Rosenberg created in Jessica Jones and mm-hmm. saying, OK, it's like you've got this character who has powers he doesn't want, who isn't naturally heroic because he doesn't he wants to lay in the cut rather than kind of come out of the shadows. Yeah. yeah. You know? And he's haunted by this by finding out that the woman that he loves, you know, wasn't necessarily upstanding. And he's in love with another woman who murdered that woman. Yeah. So yeah. that's. That's some shit, you know, so essentially going past that. Okay, so how do you start Luke Cage? And um, for me, um, it was hard because um, when I first came on, um, the first thing that happens after you, of course, you sign sign away any any real secrecy that you have, um, (laughs) um, you know, in order to even join the Marvel, you know, the Marvel Universe. The first thing they do is they give you. Um, or at least the first thing that happened with me, because this was the really in the early days, they gave me the shooting scripts for the first two episodes of Daredevil and right. the first two episodes of Jessica Jones. Right. So it was Drew, Drew Goddard's first two scripts for Daredevil, mm-hmm. for, you know, episode one and episode yeah. two, yeah. or as we say in, in, in our parlance, um, one on one and one on two. And, um, it was the same thing in terms of Melissa's first two scripts for Jessica Jones. And, I read those four scripts and I immediately wanted to quit. <laughs> they, were, they were just so good. Yeah. I mean, and, and mind you, everyone now has seen the episodes and, okay. and the episodes themselves are just brilliant and beautiful. But the experience of reading those, mm-hmm. it was just like, this thing, if they pull it off, <laughs> it'll be different than any superhero show that's ever happened on, in both cases. Like, this is graphic novel. This yeah. is like next level. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, okay. You know, with Daredevil, you've got Kingpin. Mm-hmm. With uh, Jessica Jones, you have Kilgrave. With Luke Cage, you've got Stiletto. <laughs> right. You know, you, you've got like you know Goldbug. Like like you've got like basically, if you read Heroes for Hire or Hero for Hire at the time before it became Heroes, mm-hmm. there's all these one-off villains. There's no definitive villain. Yeah. And so at first, after reading those four scripts, it's terrifying. You're like, what the? What, the f-? what do I do? <laughs> like like you know. And then you realize, wait a minute, okay, like you have, um, let's step back and think about this. What are the real dramas you have? Well, A, you've got the drama of being a black man in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that has its own struggles, triumphs, and challenges on a daily, hourly basis. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, let's look at that. And let's look at having bulletproof skin and being bulletproof when black men are being shot systematically by the cops and also neighborhood situations on a daily basis. How does being bulletproof change the ecology of a neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that's one. Yeah. Second thing that happened is that we early on had a conversation with um, Joe Casada because I was always assuming that, okay, we were going to just basically put Luke Cage um, in Hell's Kitchen or um, maybe the village, because at the time, you know, if you look at, if, at Alias's comic, it's like she's kind of in Hell's Kitchen, but she could be in the village. Yeah. Yeah. If you know New York City at all. Yeah. yeah. So I figured, OK, like 
that's where we're going to place Luke Cage. And then, but then Joe was like, um, well, the characters from Harlem, why, like, why not shoot it in Harlem? And, mm-hmm. and that, that was like, oh man, mm-hmm. me, that was just manna from heaven because that meant that musically, that meant historically, we could basically use the show as a Trojan horse to talk about African-American culture in addition to superhero stuff. Yeah. yeah. And you really have used Harlem as a character. Yeah, in, definitely. In the yeah. show, it's been fantastic watching it because it makes us as international viewers really want to go visit and see the place. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Oh, it's, it's no, it, and, and it's, 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 it's definitely an incredible place to, to, to film and also mm-hmm. to visit, you know, if you have a chance to, to come to New York city, to, yeah. you know, to see it. Um, and so then, so then that, and then the third thing was, okay. It's like, the third thing I realized was that we had a distinct advantage because um, when you have an iconic villain like Kingpin, um, you can only fail. Like they were lucky that they found the perfect Kingpin in Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, yeah. Like I, like you just in terms of his heft, in terms of him, the bald head, I mean, he's perfect. Yeah. You know, it's like, what Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, you know, did on the page is like you can only you can only fail. You can only either capture that or, yeah. you know, good luck. Yeah. yeah. You know, in terms of um, what R- Melissa did in, in, in interpreting Brian Michael Bennis's world for, for Jessica Jones, it's like Kilgrave is in the way that he reinterpreted that character. Yeah. You know, there's so much story that's there. It's like you're just trying to live up to that. What I realized with Luke Cage is that, OK, it's like. You know, people haven't thought about Cottonmouth in 40 years. Yeah. 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 People haven't thought about Black Mariah in any real way in, in, in a long time either. Yeah. And so what it gave us is it gave us the opportunity to redefine villains within the context of this, quote unquote, more realistic take on the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Grounded take. I, I hate that word grounded. because <laughs> the, the yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and I and then all of a sudden I in talking myself back into it, I'm like, OK, like there's a great opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so rather than be afraid of these challenges, let's embrace them. Let, 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 let's go at it. And so then that was the thing was, you know, um, I was lucky enough to um, be able to attract, um, you know, you know, Charles Murray and Aida Kroll and Michaela Cooper mm-hmm. and um, Christian Taylor and um, Jason Horwich and Nathan Jackson um and um you know everybody to this first staff mm-hmm. and the great thing about that was that collectively the great thing about a writer's room is that you're not alone right and that, yeah. you know um everybody is just as passionate about the characters and everybody is just as passionate about you know um exploring this world yeah. and, and, and building this world. And, um, that was the thing that was, that was so great was, um, you know, me always being a geek. Um, I called our writer's room, um, the danger room, like, like, like X-Men. Of course. The reason for that is because what makes the X-Men unique is when they fight people, you never know which combination of powers mm-hmm. is going to get you to your, the, you know, winning. So, is it going to be Nightcrawler picking up um, Logan and bamfing closer to the Sentinel so that he can slash it? Yeah. Is it going to be Colossus picking up, you know, Logan again for a fastball special? Uh-huh. Is Kitty 
pride going to phase somebody through something to do something? Yeah. Is Storm going to, you know, shoot a lightning bolt off of Colossus, which is then because he's, you know, because he's metallic, is that going to then do something <laughs> else? It's so, yeah. And so that's what you do in the writer's room. It's like, you know, everyone has different moments and ideas. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a Kayla Cooper will have an idea and then Aida will have an idea. Charles always brings interesting perspectives to everything because mm-hmm. Charles and I were kind of like, um, you know, Xavier and Magneto. Like, so, we're, <laughs> you know, Excellent. We, we, we always kind of, not, not, not in a dissonant way. It's mm-hmm. just that like, you know, Charles we, we had different factors. So it's like, yeah. I always say being a showrunner, you have to be Charles Xavier because you're in a room and you have to kind of basically read everybody's mind and, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out, okay, like who, who is, who's going to bring out what piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're basically cultivating the conversations as everyone to collectively is building um, from a structural and a dialogue standpoint, what the season is. Mm-hmm. I'm also a huge fan of American football. Um, although, you know, it's, it's still the same thing. I mean, you know, whether it's American football or whether it's what we call soccer, you guys call football, uh-huh. yeah. offense and defense. Yeah, like we enjoy the NFL too. Mm-hmm. We have a Carolina Panthers fan and a Baltimore Ravens fan. Yeah, <laughs> I feel sorry for both of you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. We've got the best dressed quarterback but, in the league, but so. <laughs> but the thing is, is is um one thing that I always that I always kind of um because my, my my college roommate um David Shaw um is a he's a college football coach. I, I, I went to Stanford University, as, as did he. We were, we were at Stanford together. Mm-hmm. And so watching him coach, I always like, I'm, I'm obsessed with coaches because coaches deal with um, trying to put a game plan together. There's a lot of personalities in the coaching room in terms of all the different positions. And then you're just trying to come up with a game plan for, you know, the players to, to, to run off of. And, and if you look at in football, they call, they call the offensive and defensive plan a script. Yeah. And so that's what we do is with the writers' rooms. We put together the script that our quarterback, Mike Coulter, is mm-hmm. going to go with, and everyone, you know, and then yeah. it's just a lot of the back and forth. And yeah. so what we did is is um, well, the way that I stock a room is um, for me conceptually, offense is dialogue, defense is structure, right? And mm-hmm. so you've got people in the room that are incredibly good with with structure. You've got people in the room that are really snappy with funny dialogue and moments. And then it's just you just put it all together. And, yeah. and you know, that's kind of how the first season came along is, is just us, you know, putting together a game plan. And that's the first part. Yeah, and yeah. then you cast. And then you layer. Yeah, you're layering actors like, you know, obviously Alfred Woodard as Mariah Dillard. Absolutely amazing. Mahershala Ali as Cottonmouth. You know, stunning performance from that character. And then he's gone after episode seven and you've got the show turning on its heels and being on the shoulders of Mariah Dillard as your new villain, really. Um, I, I loved that choice in season one to have her in the background of those 13 episodes and by the end becoming the villain, that everybody was paying more attention to the noisier boys in the room, we'll say. And then you find that <laughs> that Mariah is the one that's going to be in control of Harlem in the future. You know, it's a beautiful choice. Really, really nice choice. Oh, well, well, th- thank you. Because I mean, I, I, I get shit on a daily basis, basis for a killing cottonmouth. But, <laughs> but, but, but the, the whole, the whole way that that happened is funny because in my very first story pitch, um, even before the room was assembled, mm-hmm. um, when I was kind of just talking to, you know, um, Jeff and Kareem's rake and then on the, on the, um, 
you know, Netflix level, um, you know, Cindy Holland and Allie Goss and um, Allison Engel and Chris Henningman. You know, one of the first things I said is that we want to have a twist where we're going to make everybody think that the big bad is the big bad until we kill him mm-hmm. and introduce the big bad. And Jeff loved that immediately because he said, hey, that, that we haven't done that before. Yeah. Um, the thing was, and this is the interesting part, um, we start casting. And at first, I'm thinking that, like, um, per the comic books, that Cottonmouth's going to be an older character. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at African-American male characters in their late 40s, early 50s. So right. we're looking at, you know, Dennis Haysbert's of the world. We're looking at yeah. Ving Rhames, mm-hmm. um, both of whom as being so in- incredibly talented are, are already, they're booked. Right. It's, it's not even a question. And then what was interesting was that um, Ron Cephas Jones mm-hmm. auditioned for Cottonmouth. Oh, really? Wow. And had a very interesting um audition um actually you know um matthew lopes who who um who ended up writing episode four um and episode um co-wrote episode 11 of season two Mm -hmm. at the time he was um our script coordinator um and um wrote the um that audition scene um this is kind of very tarantino-esque kind of like um meditation on character that like it's a good they're great auditions from that piece that, that 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 Lopes wrote and Ron gave a kind of cerebral, really kind of chilling. Like it was interesting. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. his audition. It was interesting enough where we were like, okay, he might not be cotton mouth, but we got to keep this guy in the loop. Cause the, he's, he's got, he's got a certain flavor. He's cool. Bobby fish in Harlem's paradise. I love it. <laughs> you know, and then what was interesting, um, the audition that really changed everything, honestly. Um, and I don't, and here's the thing. It's like, I, I hope that people at some point rewatch the first season to fully appreciate Eric Larry Harvey. Because Eric Larry Harvey, mm-hmm. I think, is an incredibly brilliant actor. And um, I think gets short shrift as people get, you know, they're angry about losing Cottonmouth. But yeah. I think because they were angry, so angry that they didn't really look at his performance, which I thought was uh, as honestly as Diamondback was brilliant. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing was that his audition for Cottonmouth was so good um we almost cast eric's cottonmouth really okay yeah and then what happened was it said okay he's not older so let's take a younger take on who cottonmouth is mm-hmm. and then it was like okay well wait a minute if we are gonna hold to this thing where cottonmouth's gonna be gone after episode seven like we're gonna need somebody equally strong in its own way to kind of you know have his own presence so so we're like okay wait a minute okay so like Let's let's shift it. Let let's make Eric and Diamond back, and then we still have to find a Cottonmouth. And I mean, at this point, like everything else has been cast, including um, Alfrey, um mm-hmm. as Mariah, who we decided, you know, to keep, um, you know, older and, and and make them related as cousins, as as opposed to being, you know, more in the same age, brother and sister, which I would, which I didn't realize at the time was would have been very close to, to the to the dynamic that that Ward and um. And then what's the name on Iron? Joy, yeah. So we end up splitting, splitting the age difference. We mm-hmm. are made it different. And so we're just running out of actors. Yeah. Like, we're like, well, everyone's <laughs> cast and we got a date. And like, who are we going to get to play Cottonmouth? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it gets to the point where we're just kind of like, okay, like, um, who's left? And Larray um, Mayfield, who cast all the Marvel shows mm-hmm. and also, of course, um, 
with a partner also cast um, House of Cards. Right. And, you know, it's definitely, best, as far as I'm concerned, best in the business. Uh-huh. LeRae says, um, well, have you thought about Marshall Ali? And I'm, I'm like, the, the dude from 4400? Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, yeah, he's dope. And and, and at the same time, it's like I, I, I dug him as Remy on House of Cards. Yeah. But, you know, Remy is, is, is just such a nurturing guy, even though he's got a cold side. I mean, he's yeah. basically a, a nurturing guy. He's a good guy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, like Cottonmouth, like, I, at the time, I couldn't see it. But she's like, trust me, this, you know, Mahershala is, is special, mm-hmm. is, is what she said. And um, and I thought about it. And then um, there was this interview that he, that Mahershala did um, where he was talking about um, hip hop. And I could just sense from the interview that he really felt the music in the same way that, that I did. And I was like, OK. And all of us agreed, like, OK, like, you know, we've got a great. Mariah, we we know that we have an incredible Luke Cage. Yeah, we've got an actor that that that's going to play Diamondback that that you know um, we think is really dynamic. Um, Simone Missick, who um, I I had been friends and had worked with, with Dorian Missick, um, you know, on Southland. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was funny because um, you know he auditioned for Shades, and then she was basically off-camera reading sides to him, and then he was reading dialogue off-camera for her when she was auditioning for Misty Knight. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those things where we saw her on tape. I was like, oh, I was like, oh my God, who is this? And then mm-hmm. and Charles, yeah, Simone. And then the, and boom, it's like two and two together. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. It was just clear that, she, you know, um, she was Misty. Yeah. And then to pay her back for her excellent performance in season one, you bring her husband on board for season two and kill him. Um, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll and all the, all that juice is in a minute. But the funny part about everything coming together was, hey, you finally, you know, and then okay, Charles had worked with Theo Rossi mm-hmm. um, on um, on Sons of Anarchy, yeah. and was like, you know, shades like he he'd be he'd be a brilliant choice, mm-hmm. and um, and Charles and, uh, like you know say. Hey, like I liked his audition and Charles was like, yo, trust me, anytime you have a chance to cast Theo, cast Theo. So we yeah. did. And then um, we get Mahershala, who didn't audition. We, you know, it was one of those things. OK, like we're just going to, you know, we're out of time. We're just going to we're going to we're going to trust his body of work. Mm-hmm. And then we got to New York and then we got to rehearsals and then we, you know, um, it was past the table read um, when we actually, you know, because we, Paul McGagan, who shot episodes one and two, we, we shot it in blocks, meaning that we shot parts of both episodes simultaneously because we had the same director. Mm-hmm. But from the first moment that Mahershala walked on set as Cottonmouth, um, I think the first scene that we shot with him as Cottonmouth was actually the barbershop scene in, in episode two. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Um, man... When he came in and and it, he it, he basically gave you know that whole performance. Okay, mind you, like I, first two episodes, I wrote the first two episodes. Mm-hmm. But when you're watching, like particularly with the way that Paul shot and 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 watching like these performances, I forgot I wrote the shit. I'm just sitting there on set, it's like like, <laughs> like 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 this one act play, like like oh my god. And it was just the depth that he had as the character. It caused us as a writer's room. I, I, I called, you know, the writers, were, the majority of the writers were still back in L.A. Mm-hmm. So I called 
I called the writers room and I was like, yo, we got to rethink this cottonmouth thing. Um, because it made me realize all of our stuff with him was almost too mustache twirly right. because he was bringing such heat and so much resonance to, um, the character. We were like, okay, we have to retone like everything that we're doing. Yeah. And then at the same time, Mahershala is constantly asking questions about backstory. Mm-hmm. Well, why do I like music? Why am I doing this? And why, I mean, and like, and the thing is, here's the secret to show running. I don't, I don't know shit, <laughs> but you can never say that to an actor. Of course, yeah, you yeah. always have, you always have to know what's going on and 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 have the answers because you because the job is you constantly get questions, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's something I learned from from raising three kids. It's like just stick to something and be confident, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know it'll work itself out. But so Mahershala is asking these questions about like the backstory, this and that, and then because he's asking the questions, it's it's it's, it's making um, us think differently. So I'm thinking about the possible backstory of Mama Mabel. Mm-hmm. Then at the same time, Akela Cooper and, and, and Aida are, 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 are both talking about different aspects of, of, you know, being black women in, in, in terms of just like, you know, things that we talked about in the room, like color consciousness and, and, um, you know, and all these different things that are just informing character. And, yeah. and, and then finally, um, this moment that 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 actually um, I based on um, something that happened to a family friend in 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 terms of um, you know the tragedy of of Pete's treatment of Mariah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 also what was interesting is, and this is crazy. Like in the first episode, you'll notice how Jacob Vargas is saying something to. Mahershala, you know, to Cottonmouth, basically that, you know, Uncle Pete was a good guy. And there's this one kind of offset look from Mariah. That was completely an accident. Really? It was just it was just an <laughs> offtake well. that we just like uh, just an angle. It was a mistake that that was even in the cut. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it, like when you look at Alfred's expression, when Uncle Pete's name is mentioned and she looks off in the distance, you're like, oh, like, like, what is that? What, what's behind that? Yeah. And then, of course, you can just take that a look that was just an accident on set. Mm-hmm. And then, OK. There's some kind of bitterness there. What could that have been? Yeah. What could there have been that happened that would cause Mariah in the situation to kill her cousin? Because mm-hmm. at first, the first way we had scripted it, it was very just like kind of plotty. It was like, OK, you know, she sees a moment and she takes it. But then when we got into the real kind of deepness of it and we talked as a room about what we could do. And then we talked about this. And then in the final version, it's just like when we went on that personal level, it yeah. just it just took it to a whole nother level. Biggest problem of all that is we made people fall so in love with the tragedy of Cottonmouth mm-hmm. and the tragedy of Mariah <laughs> that they, they didn't forgive us yeah. for killing Cottonmouth. Yeah. Yeah. And so it kind of basically it, it, the trajectory for the rest of the season was hard because you're doing a lot of different things, you know, eight through 13 or to a certain extent, kind of, kind of a reset. But um, I don't think that we understood at the time because when you do all these things at once and because you're not on broadcast, because you're not mm-hmm. putting out these episodes, you know, week after week, you have to just swing for the fences because you don't know if you're right or you're wrong. Yeah. 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 So, and so we end up filming this and putting it out and then watching the reactions that first weekend yeah. Yeah. of just devastated how angry people were. That come, <laughs> did, come on. did you take anything from that, say, with even just with bringing – uh, John McIver and Bushmaster, because like the thing I really liked as well with 
the Bushmaster was, you kind of got the sense that he was going to be this, you know, he was getting stronger and stronger, even though there was a price to pay. But then you actually kind of made what, who I suppose, well, at least me as an audience member at the time, thinking was going to be the big bad. And he just kind of diminishes as he moves towards the end. He he kind of, uh, it, it's like a, a, a reverse hero in a sense. Mm. Uh, and I really like that, how, you know, his, that crowning moment where he takes Harlem's paradise and then soon after it just diminishes. It's like he, that power, I think, slips through his fingers. I think his right-hand man talks about he got to the top of the hill or something, saw the view, but he couldn't kind of retain it. It was like, it was really, really good. Well, well, thank, well thank you. I mean, it's, we, we, we planned some of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, essentially what it, what it was is that, um, we knew second time around that we were going to have sustained villains. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want to up the stakes in such a way that it's not predictable. Yeah. Um, we were lucky enough to have, um, you know, with, um, Mustafa Shakir, it's like, I mean, man, he just inhabited that role in ways that like, again, like Mahershala, like you're just mm-hmm. like, yo. Um, the other thing that was interesting about it was that, um, again, um, when people ask me what it's like to work for Marvel and Netflix and what I say, and this isn't even me, this isn't me being diplomatic. You have two very passionate companies that have an intimate knowledge of their, of their audiences. Mm-hmm. And from that passion comes very strong opinions. Yeah. And part of the gift and the curse of being a, sh- a showrunner is you have to navigate those opinions mm-hmm. know what to listen to and also what to ignore because the thing is is that you know as it as it said you know um success has many fathers failures and orphan mm-hmm. and yeah. if you fail you, you know if, th- if something doesn't work it's going to be your fault yeah and yeah. so the one thing you have to remember it's not about being arrogant and what to ignore and and and, and what to listen to it's just that you have to they're not sure they mm-hmm. want you to have the answer yeah and so you have to remember that sometimes. And sometimes you have to say, we're doing this, we're doing that. And the hardest part of the job sometimes is like you've got 20 to 40 people that that, that want to go one direction. You're the one person saying this is where we're going. Right. Yeah. And, oh, it's hard. Yeah. It's yeah. the hardest part of the job. Um, thing was, was that initially when the whole thing with 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 um, with introducing um, Bushmaster is we were going to basically base the season on boxing and boxing metaphors. Right. Okay, um, yeah. One of my favorite boxing quotes of all time is Mike Tyson. When he said, everybody's got a plan until, until they get punched in the face. <laughs> true. <laughs> it's true. Like, like yeah. you, you, like uh, to me, like, uh, like one of my favorite, um, you know, um, HBO, like 24 sevens was the, um, the lead up to the fight with, with Ricky Hatton and um, Pacquiao. Mm. <laughs> I, like it was such such a great like documentary because it was just like you you really get to know Ricky Hatton mm-hmm. and like there's all there's all this backstory with, with Floyd May with Floyd Mayweather's father training him and and Pacquiao being trained by Freddie Roach and um I was just so convinced because it was so compelling that that Ricky Hatton was was going to handle Pacquiao yeah, yeah. You, you get into that into that fight and then when Pac when Pacquiao knocked him out I thought he killed him. Mm. <laughs> I, I literally thought he died in the ring, and um, it was the first boxing match that I let my sons watch, and they were like six years old. And I said, "Oh my god, I cannot believe <laughs> you know watch somebody get killed in the ring." Wow. But again, that's the point. Like when somebody knocks your ass out, mm-hmm. 
open. You don't know what you're up against until you're until you're there. Yeah. So that was kind of one of the metaphors for the season. Okay, what if Luke finally faces somebody that can knock his ass out? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the introduction of Bushmaster. And what we were saying is that when he's like, "Yo, I'm Luke Cage, and you know, you can't blast me, you can't blame," you know, come out. The initial structure was that he was going to say that, and then somebody was going to come out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. Um, the hip hop metaphor was it was like L O Cool J versus Cool Mo D. Right. It was like if you say that you're the baddest, if you say that you're the greatest, mm-hmm. someone's going to come out with how you like me now. Absolutely. And that's what we were going for at first. But you know, Marvel and um, Netflix wouldn't settle for that. They're like, you have to have a better reason. You right. have to have a reason for why somebody's coming from Jamaica to do all this. And mm-hmm. and at first, you, you you basically you're saying cliches, but then you just run out of excuses. Mm-hmm. Then after a while, it's like, okay, like what could be the thing that would give Bushmaster this claim to Harlem? Yeah. Because he's Jamaican. Yeah. How would you do that? And then, of course, you know, the other musical metaphor, of course, was since hip hop also has Jamaican roots mm-hmm. in terms of the interpretation of how the music is played in terms of the sound systems and everything else. Yeah. Like um, and tracing that evolution musically, you know, and using that also as a metaphor in, this, in, the, in the show. How does this all fit together? And then, and then you, you were thinking, we're thinking, we're thinking, like, oh, OK. And so what it did was it forced us to come up with the backstory of Harlem's Paradise. Mm-hmm. It forced us to come up with the backstory of this betrayal. And then once we figured out what what that backstory was and, and the connections between the MacGyvers and Stokeses and and this way of kind of looking at two different immigrant experiences mm-hmm. from the American South to the North versus the um, Jamaican or the Caribbean experience moving to New York and how there's a, there's always kind of been there's always been this kind of baked in resentment between both camps yeah and looking at that and then the music and everything else it just it just gave us this whole trajectory for the season mm-hmm. and on one hand it gave us we understood that Bushmaster had a much deeper story yeah 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 but the other part of it was that once we got into what happens with Mariah and Mariah's you know retaliation mm-hmm. once her brownstone was burned down we knew that okay we were going to have the opportunity to introduce the real mariah oh yeah, yeah. and <laughs> the first part was episode nine with the twist of tilda's real real father yeah yeah and then and then after that is unpacked it allows Mar- mariah and her revenge to become the true big bad yeah yeah because yeah. after that moment in episode 10 it was just like Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is the constant game that Marvel fans play when they talk about the Netflix shows and and the ABC shows as well, where they're trying to find who's the greatest villain uh, in all of these shows. And really, for us, when it got to the end of that of that season, and we have Mariah Dillard effectively setting up her crime business in prison, and you're going, okay, well here you go. Now you've got the best <laughs> villain of all of the shows. You've got yeah. twenty three, twelve, twenty six episodes to set her up as the best villain, and then you do that. Then you have her daughter come in. Give her a sweet kiss on the lips and leave. And that's the end of Mariah. This totally shook our hosts, as you heard when you were hearing the finale podcast. Yeah. Uh, Chris yeah. and John particularly were kind of going, uh-oh, what happens? Can we have her back as a ghost next season, maybe? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Can she haunt Luke Cage? For it? Like, it's just, she, she's such a great character. Mm. And, like, Alfred Woodard, just the way she delivered it, because you felt sympathy for her. And, you know, hearing about her story about Pete and then... All of a sudden, just what she was saying to Tilda, and you're just like, "Oh, what are you doing?" And then you think she's kind of learning those, you know, those skills 
And then she goes, but she leaves that final, uh, I suppose, curse to, to Luke Cage as well. And it's just like, what a fantastic thing. I mean, yeah, I was like shocked. But then it's like that creative choice that, you know, yourself and I say the writer's room did was uh, awesome. Well, it, well, it was, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, um, you know, the one thing that's really important, the, I think the other important aspect of, of show running is that you have to have rapport with your cast. Yeah. Sometimes what happens in these situations is that, you know, because writers tend to be very just, I don't want to characterize writers or stereotype writers, but we tend to kind of be insular and shy mm-hmm. because of, of the nature of what we do. Yeah. And so as a result, sometimes certain um, resentments can kind of get in because it's like, I wrote it one way and you're doing it this other way. And, mm-hmm. and, and, but my perspective on actors has always been different. My, my, my perspective on actors, honestly, is that like they have so much power and that if you can figure out a way to collaborate where you can get the best out of them. Sometimes that means more dialogue. Sometimes that, that means less. But if you can figure out what that rapport is mm-hmm. and then have the scripts match that rapport, it allows you to go places that you might not have been able to go. Yeah. And we're, we're blessed with such incredible actors like Mike Coulter, like Simone Mystic, like Rosario Dawson, like Theo Rossi, like Mustafa, like, you know, um, Ron and, and, um, and Alfre and, 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 and so in everybody, frankly, like, I mean, you know, everybody, everybody from character actors to the top of, of the of the of the uh, call sheet, so to speak, come with their A game every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of the things that I do is that I always talk to the actors at the very beginning and during the season about, like, you know, what's happening. And, um, you know, in particular, like with with Alfre, I was just like, you know, um we're going to go places this season. Mm-hmm. And then I it was funny. Like we were at a, we were at a restaurant. We were at, um, at Soho house in, in Hollywood when I, when um, I was kind of talking to her about some of the things that were going to happen in the season. And I, and I told her the Tilda revelation and she mm-hmm. literally screamed and everyone, <laughs> just like, everyone in, the, in the restaurant was looking like, like, like what the hell is happening? Like, why is Alfred is screaming at this table? But like, <laughs> um, and then what was funny was like, um, as we were getting closer, she was like, she, she was like, I'm, I'm going to die. Right. Mm. And, you know, and that's the point where like some showrunners say never tell your actor that they're going to die because what will happen is that they're going to start in every scene playing violins and, right. and projecting through their every motion <laughs> that, that they're going to go. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, I mean, Alfred, come on, she's been around. She's a vet. I said, yeah. yeah. And she said, okay. <laughs> and, and she was like, what, what, what Alfred say? Alfred said, you know, just make sure I don't go out like no punk. <laughs> Fantastic. Is <laughs> what is what she said. So it was just like, okay, like, um, again, I we never want anyone to feel comfortable mm-hmm. on this show because if you feel comfortable and secure that this person is going to make it to the end of this, in, in this journey, mm-hmm. like, you know. It's going to get to the point where people are just like, yeah, you know, there's really no jeopardy because, you know, we know that they're going to get out of the ropes to before the uh, the um, train crosses the tracks. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's like we want people to kind of feel a certain level of jeopardy. And that was one of the things about the risk. But at the same time, also um, the reward of completing that story mm-hmm. is that we knew that in getting rid of um, Mariah in that way 
it was going to be a decision that could haunt us the same way that it could like, you know, that losing Cottonmouth also haunted us. But mm-hmm. the reward and the fact that it, it basically there, there's so much passion that also is making you think about these characters as real people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and also for what she had done. I mean, she had to go I mean, I was, <laughs> after that. After that restaurant massacre, I oh. mean, I was just like. Um, uh, Alfie that, that night was, I mean, cause I, I, I flew out for that scene. I mean, she was transcendent. She was just like, cause she was so cold yeah. and it, something about like, um, I think at, uh, at the time she was kind of nervous about playing it like that. And I was just like, you know, the more nonchalant you play it, the scarier you are. Yeah. Yeah. And she played that moment. So, oh my God. So perfectly. I mean, <laughs> feel better, like she, Oh my gosh, he's crazy. He's right. <laughs> but talk about leaning into the fear. You know, you, you said earlier on that you that you spent the last two years getting criticized every day for killing off Cottonmouth, and then you go, oh, I'm going to do it again with the other main character. Well done. <laughs> you lean into the fear and you sometimes get amazing results, you know? Well, that and also because, I mean, it's interesting. It's like the same way that um, Mariah slowly emerges as a villain. Mm-hmm. You're so have the opportunity um, and we'll see if hopefully if, if we get a, a season three, mm-hmm. you know, um, to explore s- similar things with with Gabrielle Dennis, because mm-hmm. the way that she played Tilda, like like one of my favorite moments um, of season two is that moment when she says, um, you know, the last Stokes just died. My name is Johnson. I was like, uh, she, yeah, yeah. it was so I was, oh, my God, it's, it's like. It's happening again. Uh-huh. Yeah, so good. It was one of those moments where even when you script it, when the way that that she delivered that line, it was like there's so many possibilities. Um, on on book, and the thing that's interesting about her is there's good and and there's the potential for else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, without being predictable, again, another character you can do a lot with. Absolutely, I think I think for me the the really cold moment for Tilda is when she's um effectively telling the funeral organizer that her mom's. Body's just going to be burnt and thrown in a, in a hole. She doesn't care anything about her, you know. But Mariah always thought of herself as kind of the queen of Harlem and kind of expecting to see, you know, the streets lined with people crying when she died, you know. Um, it's such a cold moment from Tilda where yeah. she's just going, no, just throw in a, throw in a box and throw in, the, throw in a hole, you know. A fantastic moment. Well, I mean, and that was the thing because it made the moment when um, it was the coldness of the scene in episode nine mm-hmm. and and. And Ian Stokes and Matt Owens' uh, script that Clark Johnson directed for episode nine, where you get to the moment where Mariah unburdens herself with the entire story mm-hmm. of what happened with her with Pete. And it's such a fascinating scene um, with Alfred acting wise. It was just powerhouse because on one hand, she's making you fall in love with her perspective. But then on the other hand, you're seeing how cold she is Yeah, yeah. in terms of in terms of telling her daughter that she never loved her because she can't. Yeah. Yeah. And after that moment, she's like, I'm not Mariah Dillard anymore. Mm-hmm. And then at, at the end of the episodes, I'm Mariah Stokes. And then in episode 10, you really understand what that really means. Yeah. And yeah. interestingly enough, it's like, you know, season one, the Cottonmouth Death episode was written by Kayla Cooper and directed mm-hmm. by Andy Goddard. And we have the same the same reaching for, for episode 10 of, mm-hmm. of, of season two, um, you know, where that thing happens when Mariah makes that, that cold choice and everything mm-hmm. shifts again, you know, yeah. because Mariah makes a murderous choice, yeah. you know? Um, so it was just one of those things that just, just came together, you know? And that, and that's really the most fun of, of, of the job is that when you see these moments in, in the, the perfect pairing of, of, of the writing with the acting and you just kind of just watching kind of like, you know, conducting, it's just like, man, this is wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, so good. Oh. So good. I really enjoy how you bring in the historical, like in this season with, as you said, about the African-Americans and Jamaican-Americans and, and their, their different roots. And then the current affairs very much as well, like in, in season one. Like how important is that to, to bring in those 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 touch points uh, of current and historical kind of uh, references. Cause I, I really enjoyed that. Like I actually even learned a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it- well, you know, the thing is, is that, um, it, the thing that I always think about is the fact that Netflix changed the game in mm-hmm. terms of not just being the service, um, in terms of content and the, breadth of and varieties of different shows and, and things that, that are on the service, but also the fact that you can watch it on your big television, you can watch it in your pocket, you can watch it on your laptop. Mm-hmm. And because it's already internet based, it you can essentially treat the entire show like one big hyperlink. Right. Right. And so it made me realize that okay, it's like if we kind of hit this sweet spot where people like the show they they can rewatch the show over and over again and learn different things because people, fanboys and girls, mm-hmm. you know, fan people love Easter eggs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's one thing if we have a lot of different Marvel Easter eggs, which we, which we do throughout. And mm-hmm. I think the one thing that I show, I, you know, I pride myself on with the show is that like whether it's Hammer Tech or whether it's these little things that kind of yeah. like that, that that's really just the geek in all of us to say, like, how many different ways can we like link this to um to 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 have the shows and have the universes and, mm-hmm. and everything else, but with the history, it really kind of allows you if you're watching the show the same way that you might use Shazam to say, okay, what, what song is that? Mm-hmm. It also says, okay, well, like some of these names that we're hearing, Pappy Mason and you know, yeah. um, you know, Percy Sutton, and Google those names, and all of a sudden have a much deeper understanding of, of Harlem and, and a deep, deeper understanding of the history. Yeah, and it really kind of allows you to kind of go. And these really cool places. And then you can kind of see how like this fictional Marvel history links up with real history. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so because of the fact that Harlem's Paradise is kind of an amalgam of like Small's Paradise and the Linux Lounge and some of these legendary Harlem clubs mm-hmm. and Cottonmouth is kind of personality wise. He's a mixture of like Frank Lucas and Nicky Barnes, but you're giving him like a musical side. I mean, yeah. you, you can go in so many different directions. Yeah. Like, honestly, yeah. like hey, this is going to get me in trouble. But like if I could ever spin the show off, the spinoff that I would do would probably be like the club right. and yeah. and just stay with the Stokeses. No uh-huh. superpowers. <laughs> just like, you know, the. The power struggle that that um, is described of of how like it was basically trying to this betrayal between these two partners, one partner from Jamaica, one partner from the South, mm-hmm. getting the hottest club in Harlem and trying to fend off from both the Italian mob and the um, and, and, and the Irish police presence. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that in itself could just be like a whole Absolutely. universe. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Without superpowers. I mean, the thing is, of course, I mean, in addition to just these cool moments that, that you have between, um, you know, Luke and and um, and Danny, which, of course, in the comics, of course, is Power Man and Iron Fist. Yeah. Uh, you know, that many Daughters of the Dragon moment that, you know, that you have um, in episode three, mm-hmm. um, once's episode that Mark Jobs directed, um, you know, that that bar fight. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So good. Yeah. You got that great thing. I mean, the thing is, is that like, you know, it's so much fun building a world because then you can explore these worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
And so, like, yes, there are times. I mean, you know, and I and I I I have to be careful because what you know, it's what I've learned is that like I'm not saying there's going to be a spinoff. I'm not saying there's one in the works. I'm just we're just talking as as fan people. Like, what would be cool? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and it that that's one of the things that I I, that I think about is just like how how there's always these shows within the show and that they're really interesting and and that's part of the fun of of all of us coming together, you know, to write these. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Like what, what's it like uh, having like Colleen Wing and like even the Iron Fist, like having them come onto the show as well. You were saying about like Luke Cage started there on Jessica Jones and you're, you're getting these, these other characters from, from another show, but you have the, the, like the daughters of the dragon, as you say, or those touch points of the, of say heroes for hire kind of aspects as well. And what was it, what was it like kind of taking those characters and how you weave them in, I suppose, to the, to Luke Cage? Well, the thing was, was that, um, we just have the attitude of, yes, we know that they're on other shows and people are also coming off of having them together in the Defenders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But how how would they act differently in the Luke Cage universe? Yeah. And just being really selfish about that, like saying that, OK, it's like we're not going to ape Defenders. We're not going to ape Iron Fist. We're going to basically take these characters and treat them differently in our book. Mm-hmm. Like same way how like when you would have these crossovers some, you know, sometimes where like X-Men would appear in fantastic four or, you know, they don't quite act the same way. Or if say, for example, like Franklin Richards is treated one way when, you know, with fantastic four, but when he's amongst fellow mutants and and an X-Men comic, he's, he's completely different. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's kind of like, you know, um, the same kind of thing. And so, Yes, the characters are, you know, we, we know where they are, but we're, we're just basically just kind of expanding them and enhancing them just for the, the selfish benefits of our universe. Yeah. So on one hand, we're able to kind of get into a much deeper, you know, um, both, um, you know, Misty and Colleen mm-hmm. and kind of like, you know, lay the breadcrumbs for what could become something. Yeah. No hints. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right that's all right we got we got some good bits of that on on iron fist i just want to ask that as well because you you obviously now have simone missick over on iron fist are you really protective of your version of the character to make sure that oh. that they don't go against what you've set up well i mean you know the thing is is, is that like we're all friends like mm-hmm. i said showrunners like you know myself and eric olson who's running daredevil and mm-hmm. um raven um Messner, who's running Iron Fist, and um, Melissa, um, who's running Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then back in the day when both um, Marco um, Ramirez and Doug Petrie were, yeah. were um, at the helm of um, of Daredevil. And then also, of course, Stephen DeKnight, who's, um, yeah. who was on when I first yeah. tried to work with Marvel. Yeah. Like, we're, 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 our, we're our own support group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know of, of course, can't forget Steve Lightfoot, because um, Steve and I were... Um, knew each other from the showrunners training program. So oh. like we, and when we're neighbors in studio city right. for, for years, so like we all know each other. Yeah. We all talk, we all, we, we talk story. Mm-hmm. We don't talk story like we into the nuances of each other's scripts, but you know, I can always go by their writer's rooms. They can, they can come by mine and mm-hmm. we can say, Hey, what about this? What about that? And, and, you know, we're all kind of respectful. And, and then, you know, Jeff and the power structure of Marvel um, are always making sure that we're not, you know, colliding in different things with our storylines. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's very kind of, I kind of liken it to, to what it must be like to work at Pixar. Right. 
Yeah. Where like, you have your own individual movies, but like Pete Doctor and Andrew Stanton and all those guys are like just in Jennifer, you know, they, they, they talk. Yeah. And so it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, for Iron Fist, we just knew that we wanted to um, because there was this theme of Luke's anger throughout the entire season. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk to somebody who has to channel an- anger in a better way which is chi which is zen mm-hmm. so let's let's have a let's have it be danny yeah yeah and let's have it be a different danny than the danny that we've seen in you know in season one of of, of iron fist because if you know in order to balance and challenge chi you have to have focus yeah and so what this perspective give to a non-believer like luke yeah and that was kind of the fun of this kind of you know we're having like one of those 48 hours midnight run kind of mm-hmm. like relationship between these two characters yeah and um that was just kind of just the fun we have we had with the episode and even even having a character like 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 turk mm-hmm. like you know because rob morgan is just one of my favorite people on earth he's <laughs> having that scene where where he's able to you know to to see danny and say hey man you, you know you your, your aura is dope like, like, <laughs> like, who's, who's your traitor you're like you're like wait turk turk's in a marshal like it's just these little things these little moments of humor that that you can just add in there like mm-hmm. that sometimes you have to defend because sometimes the powers that be are like well that's not room for a joke and you're like like relax it's cool like <laughs> it's good and it's cool because it's rob saying it when rob says it it's funny and then, and then it works yeah. then you get to the table read and they're like okay yeah it works <laughs> but like but it's, it's 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 just basically building those moments and of course for me it's just like musically like um you know a, a kayla cooper's script for for 10 was um you know this that you know the iron fist episode it yeah. was fantastic yeah. and then from a musical standpoint for me it's like i, I knew come on martial arts gotta be wu-tang absolutely yeah. already kind of established that template um the song that i originally wanted to use was was wu-tang clan ain't nothing to f- with oh which, right in that moment that would have just been so- that, that would just Oh, it would have been another internet break situation the same way that CPR <laughs> was for the initial trailer. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't get it cleared. Yeah. yeah but okay. using the song that we used, I still think works really well. It's so good. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. my whole thing is like, you know, I don't care that anybody else uses Wu Tang. It, it, it's got to be the right Wu Tang. Mm-hmm. It's got to be the right combination of all these different things. Um, I've been obsessed with placing music with story ever since. Um, Watching the pilot of Miami Vice, right? Uh, with you know Phil Collins in the yeah. air, yeah. Like, you know that whole thing. It's like I I, I probably watched that one scene like every other month. Well, because yeah. every time you watch it, like like you notice like little things, like like whether it's the sound of um of Philip Michael Thomas loading the shotgun mm-hmm. and and just the way that the music kind of creeps up at a certain point. I mean, like all all the stuff that when you finally mix an episode, like you can get in all the different nuances of yeah. really geek out on that kind of shit like i it, that's the kind of stuff i i love mm-hmm. or that um that that tarantino and spike lee and scorsese use music yeah um yeah, yeah. to form um visuals mm-hmm. um you know danny boyle as well yeah. like um, you know yeah uh, again like huge influences that that i just nakedly rip off of the show <laughs> but they always they always say one of the kind of screenwriting rules is not to base a scene on a specific song because then you won't get the rights to it do you do you write around that do you try and write a scene going i'm going to use a wu-tang clan song here or do you say right this is the scene and then i'll go and find a song to fit it or what's your no, process no, on that? I, I write the song for the scene, uh-huh. and if I can't get the song, I lose the scene. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 
because it's 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 bespoke. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like, you know, or you're lucky in that or I'm lucky in that I've got um, Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Muhammad, mm-hmm. who, you know, because they're such powerhouse um, composers and musicians and they can pull the, they can pull off something if yeah. if. If I if I'm unlucky enough to be able to clear the moment that that I'm looking for musically, mm-hmm. but yeah, like I I, I constantly write to music, I yeah. mean all, all the time. And do you butt um, heads with anybody that you've reviewed in the past and maybe didn't give them a glowing review, and now you're looking for a piece of music that? <laughs> do you ever butt heads with somebody in in the industry nope. because of that? Or it, no, actually no, but it, it's it's because of things that I've written in the past mm-hmm. that gave me the perspective that I had when um, I was criticized. Mm-hmm. So perfect example is like um, I wrote one of the most scathing reviews ever of the Public Enemy album, Music in Our Message. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I, I called it a what a, I called it a 13 track spiral, Dante spiral in the hip hop hell is <laughs> is is what I call that. Or when I reviewed um, De La Soul's Stakes is High. Mm-hmm. Um, now, here's the thing. On in terms of in terms of the Chuck D record, in terms of that Public Enemy record, I still hate that record. Right, right. But the De La Soul record, I wasn't ready for. Okay. It just it it, it was such a different musical turn that I just wasn't ready for it. And it wasn't until weeks later that I realized the awful mistake that I made because the record is absolutely brilliant. Wow. Right. But it and and I learned the power of a review because I essentially killed that record wow. because right. my, I was writing for LA times at the time. Yeah. And, and my, my, because I'm, I was, I was relatively respected as a reviewer. Mm-hmm. My review got syndicated wow. and was all over the place. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just like, it's one of those things where I learned, like, you know, even you have to let stuff marinate before mm-hmm. you write it. Yeah. But both perspective, but here's the thing, even though I dissed that record, Chuck D is has always been incredibly respectful, and we've we've actually become friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in the case of De La Soul, it's like you know, um, I'm I'm still cool with with um with Postinus and, and and those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that I've known I try, the members of a Tribe Called Quest for years. Yeah, and and so it's just like what I've learned is that when criticism comes from a certain place, um, on one hand, if you're being criticized, I try to act like Chuck D. Right. I try to be I try to understand that people have a job mm-hmm. and understand that job. And there might be things I don't like, but, you know, I'm still going to treat everybody with with um, with respect. Yeah. And then when it comes to um, what happened with me and De La Soul, I remember also that sometimes when people write things, you know, they they might change their mind later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They, might, they might have a different perspective. Yeah. Given time. And so that you can't get so locked in into your, you know, disappointment or even anger about what someone's written or what somebody says that, mm-hmm. you know, you just kind of just, OK, well, it's me against them. And, and it just kind of goes off the rails from there. The way we kind of approach what we do uh, really is seeing it from the perspective of, well, there's nobody out there aiming to make something bad. That's not the intention. So we need to look at it for what they're trying to do, what they're intending to do. And, um, and I think that's the only way we can criticize things coming from that perspective because coming at it some like some people have come at certain shows with this idea that i wanted to see the comic book on screen and that's not what they delivered for me therefore i don't like it and it's terrible would be the wrong way for us to do 
what we do. It would make it a very yeah. boring, uh, a very boring podcast, as I said before, if we were just criticizing things not coming directly from the comic book, you know? Well, that and also it's just like, you know, um, like for, for perfect example, like I, I'm a, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, mm-hmm. like both of the books and the movies. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a, a Hufflepuff, by the way. Nice. nice. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, is, is that, um, if you notice with the movies, the third movie, the Alfonso Cuaron movie, mm-hmm. yeah. it's the movie where things elevated. Absolutely. Yeah. Because Chris Columbus, you know, who, for better or for worse, did the exact adaptation of the books and mm-hmm. put virtually every scene from the books on screen. Yeah. It was so static and so staid. The franchise could have very easily just kind of become like diary diary of of of, of a wimpy kid with superpowers. It mm-hmm. could have just been, it could have just stayed in the in the kids genre, and, and that would have been it. Yeah. But then Alfonso came around for the third one. He said, "Okay, it's like let's take some departures from the books. Let's scruff it up a bit. Let's mm-hmm. let's really kind of get this and let's lean into in, into the Britishness of it." Yeah. You know, like 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 let, let let's have some moments that that people from outside of Britain might not fully understand. Mm-hmm. Let's also kind of, you know, get deeper into the boarding school experience. Like let, let's really kind of do some things and interpret rather than just have directly, you know, from, from the books even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's just like, you, you saw the whole, the whole possibilities of what, of the cinematic universe. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, you know, JK to a credit, every single, and what I love about reading the books is that every single book the books matured with her audience. Absolutely. So yeah. if if people were reading the books at nine and ten, by the time they got to the last book and they're seventeen and eighteen, mm-hmm. the depth of storytelling matched that. Yeah, absolutely. And sure. And so it's really kind of the same thing. It really gave me a completely different perspective on adaptation. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, don't be afraid to change things. Yeah. Don't be afraid to go there because um the one thing is is that if people just want the interpretation of the comics the comics are right there they absolutely. have the comics absolutely yeah. You know, yeah they can always go back they can always uh, you know netflix can get to get pissed but, but they, they they can always they can always shut they can always shut the tv off or, or close their computer screen and oh, yeah. shut their phone and <laughs> exactly. go back to the comics the comics are right there yeah you know yeah. um but at the same time it's like if i just gave a translation directly of the comics i think people in seeing that would be disappointed mm-hmm. you know yeah. i think you you kind of have to try to find that balance, uh, you know, between both mediums to a certain extent. And I, I think regardless of the way that you uh, you adapted, it's still going to be your voice. It's still going to be you looking at the book and how you want to adapt it. If you were going to do it that way, it would still not be everybody's adaptation of it either. You know, um, well, th- that that's the real challenge is, is like, what do you keep like, what do you keep out? What, what do you put in? Yeah. You've also people don't necessarily understand you have the limitations of budget. Mm-hmm. Um I think also what people don't understand is like people say, well, cast this person, well, cast that person. It's like, you you know, IMDb is the best and worst thing to happen Mm -hmm. because it's great that you can have have credits and and pictures of everybody at once. But then it's just like it's just not as simple as like you go to but this person, this person. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. (laughs) It it doesn't work like that because. There's so many limitations in terms of negotiating a contract of who can do what, when, and how. It's mm-hmm. just like, I mean, honestly, we're lucky anything gets made. Yeah. We're lucky anything gets done. It's <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Trying to, you know, being on the other side of that, I have a completely different viewpoint of what it takes for things to come together as opposed to I, like when I was a fan. I was like, oh, well, it's, well, it's easy. Yeah. Well, just get this and do this and pay this and, you know, no, okay. it doesn't work. 
course not. There's so many different like moments of of things coming together and falling apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my closest friends, a producer named Rudy Langless. Rudy um, was one of the executive producers on the movie, the Denzel movie, um, Hurricane. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I once asked him what a producer is, and he gave me the best definition ever. And I said, I said, Rudy, really, what does a producer do? And he said, man, all a producer is is every project wants to die mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And the only thing a producer does is it keeps the project alive. Fantastic. He or she keeps the project alive. That's, <laughs> and that's it. Fantastic. It's the best interpretation I've ever heard. And that, and that really what this whole thing is, is just like whether it's the writer's room, whether it's, it's uh, you know, um, these networks, we're just trying to keep the thing alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so many different ways of doing that. Yeah. Some days are great. Some days are really difficult. Uh-huh. But you balance it all out and you hope that you create something that um, people love. Mm-hmm. Because we we love it just as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's close her out uh, with a question on what you're doing coming up very soon. I think you've got a movie uh, coming out pretty soon that you wrote, uh, which I know our audience will be interested in hearing about Creed Two. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us? The only thing I can tell you is that um, I'm really excited about it. Um, now, the reason I'm not I'm hedging is because. I wrote the first three drafts mm-hmm. um, Then Sylvester Stallone and I, um, you know, also collaborated. And then a third writer was brought in. Right. And the way that it works with the Writers Guild is that final credits still have to be determined. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as much as like I love my experience working on it, mm-hmm. I'm not going to feel like completely comfortable saying, yeah, like it's, you know, I wrote it until the final credits are, right. are determined. Getcha. Yeah. Right. Um, what I will say is that having had that experience, it was incredible. It was so much fun mm-hmm. working on that movie. And regardless of however, however the uh, the final credits turn out, yeah. um, I'm proud to, to, to have to have written, you know, you know, versions of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's just it was just so much fun. I, you know, like cause I, I grew up with the Rocky movies. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and Creed was such an emotional experience. So good. And. Yeah. Getting the opportunity to, um, you know, write for, you know, moments with 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 Michael B. Jordan mm-hmm. and also for Sylvester Stallone, you know, Rocky's Rocky's now Mickey and and having a new fighter and yeah. you know and in terms just like the 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 shift and also like you know the one thing that I talked with Stallone about you know because one of the reasons I got the gig was was that he was a uh, you know a huge fan of um of Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the one thing I said to him, I said, look, I, I said, like, essentially Rocky, the Rocky movies are their own universe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's reality, but at the same time, these fictional characters, and there's so many fictional characters. I mean, it's just like with the fighters and, and their backstories, it's like, it's the same kind of contained thing. And so there are Rocky geeks the same way that there are, you know, comic book geeks yeah, yeah, and yeah. certain templates that have been established and so you know um i basically as a as a rocky fanboy to, to be able to, to kind of play in, in that sandbox was oh man it, it was fun so good yeah, and also you know the, the other part of the fun was when i was you know co-writing with with, with um with sylvester stallone is you'd be right we'd be talking story or, or we would be writing certain things and then all of a sudden he would start doing the rocky voice or, or saying things that's rock <laughs> 
it, it would it would freak me out. Like I'm, I'm on the phone trying to keep my face composed. Like now, but I'm like, Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting because he's done Rocky for so long. It's like Sylvester Stallone is not Rocky. No, but then when he does Rocky, you're like, oh my god, yes. it's it's yeah. it's Rock. Like like mm-hmm. oh my, it's it's. He did, he did, like it's a certain turn of his voice, and you're like, oh, like holy shit! I'm so I'm talking to Rocky Balboa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? it must be so and central I, to him as well, because you know, obviously, it was originally created because he couldn't get work. That's that's what he was doing. He was working on this script and setting up this movie for himself because he couldn't get work. So it's so central to to Sylvester Stallone, and it is the reason he has a career is because of you know the wonderful Oscar nominated, fantastic Rocky movie. So it must be so personal to him. Um, well, that and then I I don't think. I don't think Sylvester Stallone gets enough credit as a writer mm. as well as um, as a director mm-hmm. um, because f- people really remember the fact that he directed Rocky two, he directed Rocky three, yeah. he directed Rocky four. Mm-hmm. Um, John Abelson came back for Rocky five, and then Rocky Balboa he also directed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know the thing about about working with him is that in collaborating, writing with him, it was. It was a very fun, easy collaboration, and he he knows the stuff. Mm-hmm. Like he's yeah. he's not slouch. Like yeah, that was what was so great was like you're writing with him, and you're like okay, oh yeah, okay, so it makes sense. Like yeah, like yeah. <laughs> you know, this this isn't a case of um of a star overstepping his boundaries. I mean, he he literally created created this interpretation of this world, mm-hmm. and so um it was one of the 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 most fun parts of actually um you know, working on it. What was, was that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For our fellow defenders who are listening, I just want to compliment uh, Chio Coker for having the Luke Cage Muhammad Ali poster right behind your head, like as if you have your own <laughs> Harlem's Paradise. Fantastic choice <laughs> on your wall. Uh, that obviously came from you then, that decision to have that as the first poster that Luke put up in uh, to replace Biggie Smalls on the wall of, uh, of Harlem's Paradise. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, where, where we write is he the most inspirational person that Luke Cage thinks might be able to get him through the challenges that he's going to face in the future in, in Harlan's paradise. Well, the other metaphor, the other boxing metaphor that we use for season two, um, I believe it's, I believe it's the Japanese metaphor. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm wrong, please do not roast me on Twitter. I, I apologize, <laughs> we'll but it's, 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 it's this notion of um, fall seven times rise eight. Mm-hmm. And so what, makes Ali my favorite boxing champion is the fact that he's not undefeated. Yeah. Yeah. Because what it means is that those times that he lost, he, he risked it all and he, Mm -hmm. and he came up short, but it didn't stop him from getting back in the ring and, um, coming back in like, I, you know, I, I think he was actually undefeated, um, in his rematches. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and also the way that he regained, um, uh, you know, his, um, his title a number of times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that kind of is really for me, the metaphor of who Luke Cage is, mm-hmm. is that he will get knocked down at times, but he will pick himself up, whether it's in season one, the whole Judas bullet thing, or whether it's season two, it's like you get past Judas bullets and someone kicks your ass. Yeah. And then he, and ultimately he gets past it. Um, the thing that we did with the, with the Bushmaster fights was that, we kind of frame those on Ali Frazier one, Ali Frazier two, Ali Frazier three. Nice, nice. You know, like yeah. of, of just in terms of the back and forth, yeah. and because very people, few people remember that Ali lost the first Frazier fight, the, the the one in the garden. Uh-huh. Uh, 
And then, um, you know, the, the, the final, our, our final moment, our, 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 you know, um, our thrill in Manila to a certain extent mm-hmm. was, um, you know, the fight in episode 12, um, in the safe room, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, so. um, <laughs> my favorite fight though, was the fight that Millicent Sheldon, um, shot in episode six on the high bridge. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah that was cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, and also the, the fact that we got to use, uh, Bob Marley's Sun is Shining, and, oh, yes. you know, yeah. in that cool way. But, you know, and you also using that that was the, um, the, the, the least scratch Perry version of it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 got a certain grit to it, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that was different than the one that Bob Marley re-recorded years later, I, I think, on, on Kaya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. John, any last questions for? Um, just one, I suppose. <laughs> and that's that comes up to the the high bridge actually uh, with that fight because yeah bushmaster uses a little bit of magic powder or sort of kind of that voodoo reference i suppose and um, i'm a massive doctor strange fan i was kind of thinking was there this idea of bringing a mystical size to luke cage through John McIver and the McIver family and and the journey he had to go through and like Certainly for me, I'd love to know your thoughts on possibly bringing Brother Voodoo into Marvel Netflix. That earthy magic mm-hmm. was really cool. I, I was really surprised by it, actually, as well. Well, the the one thing that we avoided was was, was actually using any real, you know, like anything real, like mm-hmm. like any, any real Voodoo, any real yeah. OBS or anything like that. Like a, we definitely, you know... Even though we had some visual references, we 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 stayed away out of respect yeah. to those religions. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of we kind of stayed and, and and kept things kind of vague and mystical to to a certain extent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, the same way that, for example, um, people have asked questions about Bushmaster's fighting style, saying, "Well, hey, it's you know he's Jamaican, but he's using a, a Brazilian fighting style of capoeira." Yeah. But my whole thing was like, um, okay, we're talking about a fighting style that came from directly from, you know, slaves mm-hmm. freeing themselves. So we're getting criticism on using this fighting style rather than using an innate and, you know, an Asian martial art where the whole thing that we're trying to say is that it's, it's kind of a mixture of not just capoeira, but it's also, if you're extending the metaphor of the maroons and of you know, um, people that freed themselves and, and the fighting styles that they had to mask to make it look like a dance, mm-hmm. which every capoeira, you know, breakdancing also is influenced by capoeira, right. as well as it's influenced by Asian martial arts. And so just kind of mixing things up. I mean, you know, what we want to do, and it's also the, the thing that happens with, with the other Marvel series, like like when, when they kind of talk about some of the more spiritual elements of the hand, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's the idea of ancient magic yeah, and of magic really being science before it had a name. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, 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 and kind of the combination of, 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 of both because our technology would seem like science to people that, that weren't exposed to it. Right. And yeah. so come from that perspective of, of, of doing it, it's really more about, about that than it is about anything specific. Although what's cool about, you know, um, the characters that you mentioned, whether it's Stephen Strange or Brother Voodoo, is the fact that um, in the Marvel Universe, you have these these mystical connections mm-hmm. to other alternate universes and everything else. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
I think John's just waiting for that moment where Luke Cage walks past <laughs> the Sanctum Sanctorum in the middle of the city or uh, <laughs> yeah. sets up shop there as, as the defenders come back together or something like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> someday, John, someday. Cheryl Adari Coker, thank you so much for joining us. I know we've taken up so much of your time and I think we could talk for another two hours. We didn't even get to ask you about DW, our, our favourite new character on the show who was fantastic throughout the season. Uh, and by the end of the season, we were just totally feeling his heart on the screen. I don't know how you did it from a character that was a funny little throwaway gag at the beginning and then come to the end of the season and love him. Okay. Well, this last thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> Jeremiah Kraft plays DW. Uh-huh. Um, and literally, he just had that one line, you know, that that, that kind of funny thing that, that, that I'd written for him in the, in, in the pilot for Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. And he was so good. It was just like, we got to figure out a way to bring him back, <laughs> you know, DV. And then finally, when we filmed the finale of season one, um, you know, um, the Clark, Clark jo- um, Johnson um, finale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had a moment that I fought so hard to keep in, but we ended up getting cut where Luke before Luke and Claire walk away and he's filming them. And then. The he, you know he puts the camera down and he, and he says you know the brother needs discretion and he, and he puts the camera down. Yeah. We had another moment where they kept talking where he said what's your name kid and he said he said he said um you know D W Griffith. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Birth of a Nation? And Luke says no. He says don't. <laughs> and they walked off. And it was like it was just this cool moment where where it, we you, you would have actually heard him say his full name yeah. and, and everything, yeah. but um. That ended up getting cut, but then that was the thing. Was from that moment, okay? It's like we didn't start off with his character being DW, mm-hmm. but okay, here's a way by naming this character after this character that we can bring him into the full canon Excellent. of the Luke Cage universe. Yeah. And so then for season two, we just extended it. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so now we can bring him into the shop, and now he's trying to monetize being Luke's chronicler, <laughs> yeah. of course, of our boxing metaphor. Yeah. You know, by making him Howard Bingham. Mm-hmm. You know. It just became this thing where it's like, you know, you can understand how you have this kid who's videotaping him and, and documenting who Luke Cage is. And, you know, and plus, I mean, Jeremiah is so much he's brings so much energy mm-hmm. and so much fun. Yeah. Like he, he again has become, you know, another character that we now, you know, think about in mm-hmm. a cool way. Um, the same way that also like um, Sugar. Um, yeah. What mm. that was, again, um you know, when Sean did that, you know, Sean, Sean is an old friend. Um, we actually worked together on the movie Notorious. He, he played Shug Knight in Notorious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting Easter eggs of, of that scene is that, that um, the guy that punches Luke, yeah. breaks his hand on Luke's chin. Yeah. yeah. He played Shug Knight in the movie Straight Outta Compton. Really? <laughs> Sean, who played Sugar, played Shug Knight in Notorious. Wow. So we, they, they, they call themselves the uh, two Shugs. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and so the thing was, was that, um, when Sean had that line, you know, I don't even like these niggas, man. Like, like he was so the way he read the line, it was just so funny. It was like, we got to find more things yeah. for this guy to do. Yes. And yeah. there were so many opportunities over the last two seasons to kill him off. Mm-hmm. And it just I, I, I can never do it. <laughs> like we, we just we just love we, we loved him, Excellent. you know. And so as a result. It was funny, like you find these moments where you can make a character deeper. Mm-hmm. And um, we just had this moment where, okay, it's like sugar in this weird way. And Luke making, going in this potential new direction mm-hmm. could kind of become his new, you know, his, his new um, Bobby fish. Yeah. Yeah. And it just works so well in that, in that last episode, mm-hmm. um, even down to that moment where 
like he walks up to him. He's almost like his valet and, and, and he like whispers in his ear and you, yeah. and you kind of see him kind of becoming like a, a combination of um, Tom Hagen mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and Neary, yes. you know? Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and of course, like, you know, I, it was just funny cause I'm, I'm such a huge Godfather fan. Mm-hmm. Like the, the fact that we were able to kind of set up that shop where the door closes so on <laughs> the same way that it also closed yeah, on caves. Yeah. Like if you're, if you're a fan of those yeah. movies, I know people are going, Oh my god! Yeah, like you know, it was the same shot and everything. Like it was, it was like Alex. It was great. So good, you know. And you've also got DW set up as the new pops now. Hopefully, if we do get a season three, we have a new Switzerland possibly uh, being. Well, I, I, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> of course, of course. The the, the the only thing I will say is that Jeremiah Kraft is a great actor, yeah. and uh, I enjoy working with him. Is is the Hollywood? <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. The way that I would say it. Um, although the, although it's funny though, it's, it's funny when we're talking about killing people off. Um, mm-hmm. I was on a panel with um, Frankie Faison recently, yeah. and Frankie um, is the only character that's been in all four Silence of the Lambs movies. Yes, and um, <laughs> I joked on stage. I said, you know, you, you survived four Hannibal Lecter movies <laughs> in only two episodes of Luke Cage. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, once again, I'll say thank you so much to you, Larry Coker. Hopefully our uh, fellow Defenders have enjoyed uh, listening to your discussion about Season 2 with us on Defenders TV Podcast. Uh, hopefully you will also get confirmation soon of Luke Cage Season 3 and you'll come back and join us and chat to us again about uh, about the next season or anything at all, really. You've got our phone number oh, now. So. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. And also, if you go back and edit this and it's all complete nonsense or just me, or just me rambling and you guys have more specific questions, and then let's, let's, let's do this over again so I, so I can actually answer the questions <laughs> we loved listening to the discussion great. and I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to listening back to it to be, to be honest so yeah thank um, you so much for joining us we will uh, hopefully talk to you soon yeah thank you uh, massive thanks really good mm-hmm. thank you no and, and and thank you just um not only on behalf of luke cage but also on behalf of all the other um marvel netflix shows i mean um i'm definitely going to turn on the other creators to the to this podcast if, if they haven't already listened to it because man it's like you guys get so in depth on every single episode. It's, uh-huh. it's mind blowing. You know, thank you so much. No problem. And I, I, know, I know that that all of our writers are fully appreciated. So, Excellent. and and just on my behalf, thank you so much. Cool. No problem at all. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing what you what you got coming next. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Thank yeah. you again. Thank Cheers. You. Thanks so much. Take care too. Have Cheers. a great day. You too. And that is our interview with Chio Hadari Coker, the showrunner of Marvel's Luke Cage on Netflix. Really fun interview. Really, really enjoyed that. Thanks again so much for joining us, Chio Coker. And thanks to you, fellow defenders, for joining us for this discussion about season two of Luke Cage. We're still cracking on with our discussions about Iron Fist. Still have a couple of episodes left of that show. And if you want to join us for our next podcast about the marvel netflix shows daredevil will be coming up in october as well so uh, lots and lots of discussions about each individual episode of the netflix shows thanks so much for joining us make sure you stay subscribed to the podcast through our website at defenderstvpodcast.com you'll have connections to all of the podcast sites that we're on including apple podcasts and google podcasts as well talk to you soon and we'll leave you with our usual luke cage theme from mississippi mcdonald (laughs) 